Hello and welcome to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking here. The goal for each Painless Podcast is to connect with and get to know great people in sports, events, startups, and cause marketing. And we'll tell you about today's guest, Julie DeCaro, in just a sec. But first, a quick business note. The Painless Networking Group is hosting our first joint speakers event with the Emerging Chicago Sports Professionals Group next Thursday evening. That's April 20th. Have great, great speakers lined up with my promise to you that it won't be the same old, same old panel discussion. Head over to www.painless.network. That's not .com. It's painless.network. Get your ticket info on our sports marketing leadership session next Thursday, April 20th from 6.30 to 8.30 in the evening at the Fun Catalyst Ranch Meetup Space, conveniently located on West Randolph in downtown Chicago. Just 15 bucks covers the basic costs and gets you some smart conversation with sports marketing experts a painless networking session, and it includes appetizers and drinks, including beers from Two Brothers Brewing. Painless.network has all the info. Okay, today's guest, Julie DeCaro. Julie is one tough cookie, a recovering attorney, one I would not want to be sitting across the table from. Um, She grew up listening to sports radio and reading the sports pages, and uh, always enjoyed writing, but didn't think that uh, sports career for for woman was out there. She uh, blogged on the side while she was an attorney, and and then uh, when she got fed up with the law, dove headfirst into sports writing career. The misogynists out there continue to dismiss her extensive legal experience as well as the unfortunate perspective she has from being a rape victim herself. Now, if you don't believe me about the vitriol she and other women in sports are putting up with and on a daily basis, hit pause on this podcast and just Google the hashtag more than mean. The YouTube video that Julie and Sarah Spain did together with the guys at Just Not Sports certainly shook me to my core, and uh, I would imagine it might do the same to you. It's an award-winning video. It's become a national story, and rightfully so, now seen over 4.2 million times. If you haven't seen it, or if you even have, hit pause, watch hashtag more than me right now, and then head right back here. All right, back to Julie. Uh, she has not let that kind of crap get her down. In fact, it's fuel for her and has helped her basically further hone her voice in both literal voice and writing voice, that is. Now she's on the air multiple times a week on WSCR 670 The Score. You can read her work in many places all over, starting with cbschicago.com and, of course, her Twitter feed, at Julie DeCaro, J-U-L-I-E-D-I-C-A-R-O. All righty, let's get going. Recorded March 27th at The Score's downtown Chicago offices. Let's get connected with Julie DeCaro. Julie, let's uh, dive right into it, and uh, like to talk to people about what's uh, what's your background, what what shaped you, where'd you grow up, where are you from? My parents are from this city. My mom's from the north side. My dad's from the west side, um, and my, I've got a lot of family history 
in and around Wrigleyville, in and around uh, Elmwood Park area. Um, and we lived on the north side. We lived in Skokie when I was growing up, when I was a little, little kid. And at some point, my parents decided to move out of the city. So I was seven or eight, and we moved up to this little small town called Roscoe, right on the Illinois-Wisconsin border. It's a bedroom community. The home of Danica Patrick. Yes. That's what she claims is her home yes. place, right? Yeah, right. So it, it was a really nice little place to grow up. I mean, it was a pretty, um, you know, solidly middle-class community. And, you know, we had a country club and everyone belonged to the pool in the summer. And, and you know, we rode our bikes to creeks and caught fish and crawdads and played in the woods all summer and ate blackberries when we got hungry. And so it was a pretty carefree childhood. And did they move out there because of, like a lot of people do, getting out of the city to better schools, a better family environment? Yeah, or was I think, it a job uh, that simple? I or? think it might have been a job for my dad, but I do know that there was starting to be more crime in the area that we were in. And it, it sounds so funny now, but I know my parents always talking about someone had their bike stolen from in front of their house and they were like, it's time to get out. <laughs> so, oh, jeez. <laughs> so white that's sounding. A, yeah, so. that's a very low threshold, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so did you grow up with um, a lot of siblings? Was it, uh, you know, running out, like you said, pulling pulling worms out of the, the ground and fishing and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, I have um, th- two younger brothers and a younger sister. Um, oh, so you're the boss. You're the uh, Yeah, oldest. and my brother and I are about 18 months apart. So it was sort of two sets of two, me and my younger brother and then my younger sister and littlest brother. And um, yeah, I mean, we caught toads and spiders and turtles and chased badgers in the woods. And I mean, you know, it was just, it was a very outdoorsy childhood. And where does sports factor? Did you play a lot of sports growing up too? Yeah, I did. My dad um, always coached us in every sport, starting when I think I picked up a baseball bat when I must have been five or six. Um, And uh, we wound up as a soccer family. I was a gymnast, um, but my dad fell in love with soccer pretty early on, even though he had never played it. He coached my brother, who was a terrific player and wound up playing in college. Um, And uh, both my brothers played in college, actually. And um, so we always had, we were always going somewhere. We were always going to gymnastics or diving or volleyball, and my mom must have just lived in the car, right. driving us everywhere. And my dad was always our coach. And so, yeah, there were just tons of sports in our family. So, And family. I mean, it sounds like it. Yeah. Like parents around, siblings around. Definitely, yeah. So you went to your undergrad is at uh, Indiana University. How yeah. did you pick to be a Hoosier? Gosh, um, you know, I think like a lot of people, I went there and I absolutely fell in love with the campus. I didn't want to go to Illinois because everyone went to Illinois. And I was at the point where my high school was a little mean girlish. You know, there was definitely clicky and it was definitely based on how much money your parents made. And I was sort of over that. And if I went to Illinois, I was just going to be with the same people all over again. So I, I wanted to go somewhere else. So I looked at North Carolina, I looked at Michigan, looked at a bunch of other schools, Northwestern. But I, something about IU, I went there in a summer. Day. It was still cold in Chicago, but it was warm in Bloomington. Got down there. Whole campus smells like flowers because the dogwoods are blooming. Um, everyone's outside playing beach volleyball. And I was just sort of like, well, this is it. This is where I want to go. Well, that, yeah, you went on the ultimate uh, recruiting. Uh, yeah, recruiting day. It for was like IU, yeah, right? it was like a course catalog for why you should go to IU. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, right. I, I went to Champaign, and it's uh, IU without the hills and uh, m- even you know more farm smells and, <laughs> and not the good ones, right? So I don't blame you. <laughs> uh, so 
um, did you study journalism, at least one of your uh, majors yeah. or minors, right? Did you work at the, were you already then into radio, working at the paper, both? I wasn't. I, I, studied, I worked, I was on the editorial board for the Indiana Daily Student, and so I wrote columns. Um, but I didn't really do anything other than that. I was in a sorority, and my social life took up a lot of my time, which looking back <laughs> is one of those things that you're kind of like, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? But um, yeah, I, I was more involved in sports. I was involved in student athletic board, which worked with all the sports programs, a sort of like, you know, undergrad amateur PR. Um, and I did a lot of that. And um, column writing was always sort of where it was at for me and never really wanted to be a reporter. I always wanted to share opinions. So that was what I did. Oh, really? So at that point, uh, you then went on to law school at DePaul. Uh, the writing, how did, does that tie into it? Is that part of, you know, what drew you to being an attorney or, you know, what, how did you, you know, were you going to become a sports no, agent? I mean, or? when I, so I grew up on sports radio. My dad always had WGN on in the car when I was growing up. And back when I was a kid growing up, WGN was very sports heavy. It was very Cubs, very, you know, Randy Minkoff and Chuck Swirsky and Wayne Larravee and all those guys that were on all the time. And so I really got sucked into talk radio, into the sports part of it. But I never saw any women doing that. And I didn't even see any women writing about it. Um, the one woman who comes to mind for me is Melissa Isaacson writing about the in the 90s. But I, I didn't see really any women doing that. And when I graduated from journalism school, I didn't really know what to do. And because I wasn't really ready to go out into the real world, I was like, hey, I could go to law school. So <laughs> I, I, you know, and I think that arguing has sort of always been it for me. So whether it's in writing form or whether it's in front of a jury, it's, it's kind of the same thing. But, you know, even when I was a kid, I still at my parents' house have just notebooks and notebooks full of me just writing stories and writing out my opinions on things. And so writing's always kind of been where it's at. Now, was there, as part of the arguing, <laughs> was that, uh, you talked about your siblings and and uh, growing up fairly close, was that part of the dinner table too? Like, was it uh, oral arguments? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Except, you know, more with my dad, who's, my dad's a really bright guy, um, but we are diametrically opposed when it comes to politics and just about anything else. And so my dad and I used to just argue and argue and argue for hours at the dinner table, and they'd always say, you're going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and I would always say, no, I'm not. I'm going to be a writer. Um, and then I wound up as a lawyer. <laughs> Did you, uh, in listening to WGN, was part of that too, sports writers, I'm assuming? There were, oh, yeah, absolutely. Because that was a highlight of my week was was on Sundays. Yeah. You get those guys in there. Yeah, I used to sit in my dad's Buick and turn on the radio on the driveway and listen to it. I was like the weird kid who did stuff like that. But yeah, I loved it. That's Yeah, no, I, I get it. That was the... Um, that for sports particularly, that's mm -hmm. it. I grew up with this, the same thing, the, the Cubs and and uh, sports writers and Sports Central and all that. Yep. And that, that also had an influence on, on my life. Um, what, through high school, college, law school, besides you know your dad uh, being somebody of setting an example and being able to express opinion um, for probably at least mostly good, good use, mm -hmm. but uh, who else did you have as mentors and advisors that helped shape where you 
ended up going. Yeah, I had some really great um, journalism professors um, at, at IU, especially my opinion, my op-ed um, journalism professor was one of those who like changed my life, who taught me how to write um, an, an op-ed. Um, I had a um, terrific AP history teacher in high school who was a hippie feminist still fighting the 60s, um, you know, 20 years later, and she was an, hugely influential in my life. My grandmother um, was one of the first women working in business in accounting downtown Chicago. She was the only woman in like her entire company, short for car company. And she was always in really nice suits and she, you know, had her clothes made at Marshall Fields and she, men were terrified of her when she walked into the room. She was Catherine Hepburn come to life. And she was a total badass, and I worshipped her. And um, she, you know, she, my family's from, like, the Belmont School Street area. She didn't finish eighth grade. She was in an orphanage. She used to walk from oh the north gosh. side all the way to Jackson to take lessons in accounting, in typing, in shorthand. And she worked her way up through the industry to be what she was. And she was incredibly inspirational to a lot of people in our family. And was she around? Is she still around right now? She, she died in 2004. Um, so I still don't know if I'm over to, it. Yeah. yeah, She was there but for a lot of my life. The, you, were, yeah. you got to experience and talk to her about yeah, it firsthand. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. To law school and you obviously writing is super important in that profession. How did you, you know, did you continue to do sports writing uh, or even basically opinion writing outside of law, or did that have to get kind of shut down while you're going through law school and early on in your professional career? Yeah, it was kind of shut down. I mean, I dabbled in a you know blog here or there when blogs first started, but nothing really stuck. I think mostly too because I had small kids, and so it was difficult. But um, in 2005 or 2006, Explanation started a bunch of sports blogs, and one of the first ones it started was Bleed Cubby Blue, which was a Cubs mm-hmm. site, and um, I started jumping in there. Um, on the message boards and then eventually wound up writing for that site. And so in 2006, I started my own site and there was, it seems like this always happens with blogs. There was like a huge blow up. There was a big split and like I took like half the readership with me. And um, that that was the one thing that I never felt like was work for even a single day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd wake up every day. I'd see what the Cubs news was. I'd write my blog. Whether I was sick, whether you no matter what was going on, I did it every day. And, and developed a, a pretty decent following from that. And it was something that I loved to do. And from that, everything just sort of snowballed. So you were a legal intern with the United Nations Center, an Mm -hmm. assistant public defender at DuPage County, a case law editor with LexisNexis, a domestic Mm -hmm. violence attorney with the Chicago Domestic Violence Legal Clinic, and an associate at a couple of firms. Then you started your own family law firm with another partner. Um, How did you... And and while that was going on here towards the, the, the last couple of positions that's when this blogging stuff took off. Mm -hmm. How did you find that balance, like two kids, two young boys, all those different things? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I balanced it that well in the beginning. (laughs) I mean, I definitely know there were times when I probably should have been doing something for work and I was doing that instead. And I know it used to drive at one of the firms that used to drive one of the partners crazy. She'd walk in and she used to come stand behind my desk to see if I was on the Cubs site or if I was actually like working. Um, So I don't know if I balance it that well. But yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those you find a way to do what you love, that old cliche, and that if you love it, it doesn't feel like work. So if it meant getting up early or if it meant, you know, taking a laptop with and writing it on the train or, you know, something like that. That's, that's what I would do because it was fun for me. I had this, and it had this huge following and, um, it really did feel like, uh, our little corner of the internet, 
our mm-hmm. little our little group of Cubs fans. And so, um, and I, and through that, I got to do a lot of things I like to do, like go, you know, get a credential to the Cubs convention and, and stuff like that. So it felt like it was going somewhere, as opposed to being in law, where I just felt like <laughs> it was just dragging on and on. It was never going to end. Yeah. Right. Well, it's so is. That almost, uh, not to read your, try to read your mind or something, but it became an outlet, at least, that was constructive, positive, d- working on your passion, right? Yeah, and I think that, you know, especially if you're working in family law like I was at the time, it, there is nothing worse than family law. I mean, I mean, I've done death penalty trials, and, and this was way worse. I mean, <laughs> people fighting over kids, it, it just, it's so depressing and demoralizing, and it just sucks the soul right out of you. And I know so many lawyers who have wound up in sports, and I think it's because because that's our escape from law mm-hmm. and from what we're dealing with. And then, it, you know, and then you just were like, wow, this is really what I want to do full time. I don't want to go back. And so I felt really guilty for a long time that I was, I felt like I was laying down sort of the torch for, you know, civil rights and, um, you know, fighting for indigent clients and things like that. But then I got to the point of, you know, I gave 15 years of my life to this. Someone else can pick it up and maybe I can contribute in other ways. Yeah, that, that was that segue then into the, how did you make that that transition of you know like you said both you're trying to fight the fight from what you were doing really yeah. right and you've got to make money your husband did he did he have to push you to you know kind of like no you do that because this is what you want did you you know, was there were there arguments at the dinner table with him? Then, like, do we do this? Do we not do this? How, how do you come to that? Because that's a big change. Yeah, right? and I think definitely for us, there was the okay. We established our life out here with our new house and our kids and our cars and everything on two lawyer salaries, and now you're going to do something else. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely been arguments and stress about that, and um, I think that happens anytime someone changes a career. But yeah, it was definitely hard, and it was there were jobs that. I I wanted to take that I couldn't because it was, you know, I was only making, you know, such a little amount of money a year. Um, and, and, and still, there's still times when I complain about something or you not being able to do something or buy something. And my husband's like, well, <laughs> you're the one that gave up law and decided you want to work in radio. So, so did you then uh, with your, your last legal work, did you then just shut down Essentially, or did it phase out? And you know, like you, you put a not even a line in the sand, but you put a true literal line saying, "Okay, I'm done, and I'm going to focus on." the writing and trying to get into do more radio and those things? Yeah, well, because I had a lot of divorce cases, those go on forever and there's just no end in sight. So um, what had happened was I had gotten a job because social media was just something that always sort of intuitively made sense to me. I just sort of knew how to do it right from the beginning. So I developed a pretty big following pretty quickly and the Tribune had noticed my blog and the Tribune asked me to come if they could distribute my blog on the Tribune's blog network. Um, And I was the first blog they signed to do that. So um, and there were only six of us at the time. There was like my blog and Billy Deck's blog and like a couple other ones, mm-hmm. but not very many. And so um, I, through that, I started teaching social media for the Tribune. And um, I was doing it like as a side thing just to bring in a little more money. And one day I said to um, one of the guys at the Tribune, I would give my eye teeth to be able to do this every day and not have to go back to practicing law. And he said, well, you know, there's actually an opening here. 
And so I applied for that job and I got it. And I still had all these divorce cases. I had to finish them up because there's no judge was going to let me just walk away from like, you know, six or seven cases. So there would be days when I'd say to the Tribune, I can't come in today. I've got to go to court and do this jury trial and then I'll come back. Um, and so that was a real pain for a while. Wow, but they let you do that. They did let me do it. And, I, st- and I had stopped taking any new cases. So mm-hmm. eventually they phased out. And when I was done with my last case, I posted on Facebook a picture of Frodo after he threw the ring in being like, it's done. It's over. <laughs> and I loved law. I, I would go back to being a public defender in a heartbeat. But uh, family law is just an insidious, horrible, ugly, soul-sucking thing to do. There's just so many negative, rough, hard stories and all the emotions that are in it. I can imagine that it's... Yeah. I always tell people, you see people at their worst during the worst time of their lives. Yeah. Yep. You know, how, how at that point then, you, you've always enjoyed writing. When did the on-air stuff uh, start happening? Looking back that I, I know in bef- the uh, the score, or not the score is where you are now, that WGN, the game back in 14, was that the first regular on-air? First uh, ever, yeah. It was. Right, the first yeah. ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, I, so I went to the Tribune, I took the social media job and eventually I wound up taking over their blog network, um, and, and sort of running it with Jimmy Greenfield, who's been running it since it started. And, um, you know, basically taught them how to do social media, how to write a blog, how to, how to, you know, use SEO keywords, how to push it out so more people could see it. And I was still doing my blog at the same time. And then one day I get this email from WGN radio and they say, we're going to start a sports talk station and we want you to be part of it. So it just kind of fell in my lap, but it was what I'd kind of always wanted to do. Right. It was, yeah, it fell into your lap because you were also, I think, get the sense of that you were working towards that, that you were establishing credibility. I was trying to, yeah. So... I guess that could probably be a whole that could probably be a whole podcast with some of the folks uh, you know around the table that were at the game. Um, I per- yeah, personally was, sure. <laughs> was very disappointed that it didn't uh, wasn't written out a little bit longer. We were because, too. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. there was a lot of talent. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of potential, and I think people were looking for maybe another voice or a different little bit kind of voice in Chicago for sports. So, And I was really lucky in that I was on the best show with the best guys. We all really got each other. Um, There wasn't a reference someone threw out that someone else didn't pick up and run with. And it's hard when that's like your first experience because I'm always kind of chasing that now, you know, like I'm always trying to find that, that fit with someone else again. So from the game, there was a little bit of a, a gap in there before coming to work at the score. Mm-hmm. And then was that you were full time basically on uh, writing, blogging, yeah. building that trying piece to up, right? Trying to establish freelance connections, trying to let people know I was out there. I actually got hired to write for the score, I think in February. So the game ended December 31st. In February, I got hired to write for the score. And it wasn't until April, I think, that they hired me for on air yeah, okay. and stuff. But I was really lucky that I was one of the few people that didn't have a big gap because there's, there's people that still have not recovered right. from the game going under, right. which is terrible. Right. So you've written... And I'm, this is not the complete list, but SI's The Cauldron with Vice Sports, with Nerdist, with Fansided, The Establishment, uh, of course, The Tribune we've talked about, and CBS Sports and Score and, and those related CBS sites. Was most of that happening during this uh, 14, 15, 16 period? Has that been stretching back? to think. Um, you know, I mean, most of that has been relatively recent. I'd say like 15, 16. 
is when that really when I really kicked that in. And how do you now at this point that you've done all this and and sometimes you know the different outlets and slightly different voice and things like that? How, how do you sharpen your writing game? Make sure that you're you know, always on top of that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I always do. I hope I do. <laughs> um, I've been blessed to work with really great editors, especially at the Cauldron. Um, they just had some fantastic, amazing editors there who not only copy edit your work, but shape it and give it flow and tone and structure and, and things like that. And they were really wonderful to work with. And Kate and Kelly, Kate, Kate and Caitlin Kelly at Vice Sports too, is another editor like that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't write about something unless I'm really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I know that is a source of frustration, especially for my husband, because <laughs> he's like, you know, can't you do this more regularly and, you know, establish, you know, like another flow of income here? And But it's really difficult for me to write if I don't care about it. Um, so... Uh, I wait until the very last minute because I'm a huge procrastinator, and I think in my head about how I want it to, you know, how I want it to go. Right. And then at some point, it just kind of all comes tumbling out, and I put it down. And then I've been lucky to have really good editors who make me look good. And when you're doing these, uh, because it's more freelance than than you know ongoing, like you said, you've had good editors. What kind of feedback do they give you? Are they, you know, do you give thinking back to the first episode of the podcast with with Nancy Armour talking about how you know she basically send up the first five graphs or something and then the editor would come back well this this is going off in the wrong direction or this is you know this is not tight enough and stuff can you get that when it's one off is it hard to to do that is that more of a challenge or uh, I don't know because it's the only way I've ever done it. Yeah. I haven't gotten, I, I haven't been through those edits where I know some friends have done edits with certain editors or certain outlets where it's just like, you know, four or five, six edits. I've never had that. Um, I've always had just a couple changes, you know, maybe move this paragraph here or maybe expound on this a little bit. And mm-hmm. so it's been relatively quick. I think one of the things I've learned is that I have to, I, can, I, I think that I assume things in my head that I don't put down on paper. That's a theme that I've, I've caught over and over. So when I get asked to, can you explain this a little bit more over and over, I know that I'm not putting everything down, that I'm putting some of it down, and the rest of it I'm just assuming people are going to get instead of having to spell it out. So that's one of those things I've picked up all the time. I don't know, though. Like I said, I've never been through those like really horrific edits that I hear about from people. I probably just cursed myself with that. (laughs) I'll check in with you in a few (laughs) weeks after your next piece. Chris, this one was bad. Uh, How about on being on air? Uh, that, you know, I know just in limited amount of time here doing podcasting of how hard it is to listen to yourself. Do yeah. you force yourself to do air checks a lot or you do sit down with your bosses here at the score? Mitch Rosen, feedback? yeah, does sit down with people and do air checks and I, I, I dread them. I hate the sound of my own voice. Mm-hmm. And and even worse, there's always people on the text line saying, God, I can't stand Julie DeCarroll's voice. She sounds like my ex-wife when she was screaming at me, you know, and stuff like that. So it just makes you feel worse. Um, but I mean, my voice is what it is. I do the best I can with it. I definitely have things I've worked on. I know I've got I get my dad's West Side accents mm-hmm. going sometimes when I talk fast and I try to avoid that and I try to round out vowels and not be so nasal and you know, so there's a lot of things I've worked on, but I think every time you hear yourself, you learn so much, as painful as it is. Mm-hmm. And and one thing I always like make fun of myself is being like Frank Costanza, where there's that episode where the Korean woman he dated says he has like a strange halting way of speaking. <laughs> and like 
I've noticed that about myself. I think it's a Chicago accent is very like staccato and quick and very, and so I, I really try to stretch things out and, and round them out and make it not so Chicago-y sounding, but I don't know. It's, it's just kind of the way I sound. They're both hard, voice and, and written word, but the written word where I struggle is, to your point exactly, that summarizes it, of assuming the mm-hmm. other, like, because you're picturing things in your head as you read. I think the the voice stuff, I don't like the sign of my voice, but it is what it is. And so, right, right you can do it. It's more objective, I guess. It's pace, yeah. pronunciation, consistency of volume, whatever. That's int- I never thought of that. Yeah, the first time I did an update, um, Todd Manley at WGN had me listen back to it, and it was so monotone. I couldn't believe uh, I did it, and I didn't realize I was doing it. So that was when I realized that I learned to sort of pace myself and emphasize different words and speed up and slow down and try to vary the sentences a little bit. I remember watching this um, interview with Janice Dickinson, and she was working with a young model, and she was trying to tell her to do different things with her face, and eventually she showed her the, the sheet, the proof sheet, and she was like, look at your face. Your face is the same in every single picture. And I think it's the same for voice. You've got to vary it, shake it up a little bit, even if it sounds goofy or silly, or even if, you know, sometimes I listen back and I'm like yelling and I'm like, oh my God, do I really sound like that? That sounds like typical, like morning zoo shock jock, like screaming into the mic. But I think that's better than monotone. So you've got voice voice, you've got your written opinion pieces that you do, the the not necessarily longer form, but you know, full-on columns. And then something that you do a lot of is tweeting. Yeah. And that's very different from both of those and certainly different from legal writing. Yeah. You said kind of from early on, social media was something you felt uh, worked really well for you. Yeah. How is that? Because to me, those are very, very different styles. I think I figured out three things fairly early with Twitter. One is that Humor is the currency. Mm-hmm. You've got to be snarky. You've got to be witty. Unless you're, you know, Lawrence Tribe or, you know, Noam Chomsky and you really have wisdom to impart to people. <laughs> if you're just a regular person, you got to be funny. Number two is that 140 characters really is a mini creative writing exercise, which is how I've always looked at it. And then the third thing is that you've got to be up on the at least for my audience, you've got to be up to the memes, you've got to be up on pop culture, up on the news. So instead of just saying like, hey, this reminds me of me in a tweet, you say, it's me, you know, it me. Like that's that's the currency, that's the way people are talking these days on Twitter. So I think you get those three things figured out, Twitter's fairly easy. There you go. There, everybody, there's everybody go up and make a million dollars now. <laughs> yeah, Julie's three I'm tips. still working on it. Yeah, right? So here you are now. Uh, on the air a lot updates you have your own um, your own shifts here on the score sometimes overnight sometimes weekends you're doing the writing you've got two teenagers uh, your social media presence how are you now do you feel that you have a good balance or is it uh, always still a struggle a work in progress it's always a struggle because at one thing I've learned about myself, recently is that I'm an information junkie. So I always want to be watching the news or be on Twitter, which is where I think most of us get our news these days. I always feel like I'm going to miss something if I'm not constantly scrolling or if I'm not watching MSNBC or or reading the newspaper or whatever. And so I always sort of feel the pull to do that when I'm doing something else, when I'm with my kids or when I'm writing. So I try to concentrate a lot on being present with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and in and, and, and the situation that a lot of us have that we're let go from the game, I'm still working part-time. You know, there's a lot of us that are 
still working part-time. So getting a full-time job is sort of, you know, that maybe then I'll feel like I have the balance. But it's it's a thing that I have to sort of be aware of at all times. My kids will come over and be like, mom, put your phone down. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and my husband gets really aggravated too. And, you know, um, Twitter to me is so much more than just social media. I mean, I could, I could care less about Facebook. Like I do it because I feel obligated to do it. But Twitter to me is something different. It's like this whole group, like this whole bar of people that you like right in your pocket, you know, and you can access them anytime and they're telling you new and interesting things and making you laugh. And so to me, Twitter is really addictive and I've really had to learn to sort of pull back. When did your, did your numbers, and I want to, we'll talk some more about, about the video that you did with, uh, with Sarah and the just not sports guys in a, in a second is, is that your followers you're at when I looked this morning, I want to say it was 38,000 or something like that. Could on there. Be. Is that right? I mean, that's a big, uh, pretty good size. 30 number. something. I have no yeah, idea. It's which... a good number, large number. When did you get to that point? Has it been a steady increase yeah. or an explosion at one point? Yeah. I remember when I got to a thousand and I thought that was like a big deal. It's been sort of a steady growth, but there's been definite peaks when things have happened. So after the video, I think I picked up 5,000 followers. Um, there was something else I wrote and I can't remember specifically what it was. And I picked up a couple thousand after that. Um, I, you know, I was on talking about Carrie Fisher and how she opened up mental health, you know, and mental illness for all of us who struggle with it to come forward and not be ashamed of it. And, you know, having Princess Leia be the first one to do it was like a big deal. And so I was on some nightly newscasts and stuff and that shot up again. Huh. So there's just been sort of these little things along the right. way that, that, but, but, you know, there was, I, I'm, I must've been at 15,000 or so before I got into radio. So it's been kind of a steady climb. And then yeah, so every once were... in a while I say something that, you know, pisses everyone off and I lose 3,000 followers, and then I sort of start again. And <laughs> so you can you can see that trough as much as the, the oh, yeah. with some oh, yeah. of those things. Oh, yeah. Especially when I tweet about politics. Really? really yeah. It's that, oh, yeah. Election time, yeah. 5,000 followers gone. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now I want to spend some time specifically around that and your both your visibility and positions on some of this. That Was it the... Patrick Kane rape investigation was that really whatever the term would be the loggerhead or, or whatever of putting both your legal experience, your opinion and background, and the backlash against well probably as much of anything women in covering sports was that the convergence or did I miss that was there something else before another incident before that there was um, when I first wrote about my rape was for Deadspin okay. and I compared I, and what I was trying to say was I was trying to use my own experience and comparing it to the, the woman who was accusing Jameis Winston and saying don't you know, assume that you know whether or not she consented based on her actions afterwards. Because I went out the next night, I saw my therapist at a bar, we had a nice conversation, we chatted, we goofed around. So just because she was texting him the next day, don't assume that nothing happened. Um, and, and that's when I learned that FSU Twitter was a thing, and that was a mess. But that was nothing compared to Patrick Kane, the Patrick Kane thing. That was just, that was unbelievable. <laughs> that, and so that's what I wanted to dive a little bit on deeper on is that and because I mean I think you're uniquely qualified first of all as you said there's still to the case of there's not enough women mm -hmm. that are in this business there's more now at least that somebody mm -hmm. that's you know in high school college in Chicago radio right. can at least point to you or or Sarah right. and you know th there are examples of that and, and all the way up to the national media thank goodness but still it's a smaller number so from a woman's perspective from someone who has been a victim of rape from someone that uh, has a legal experience and not just legal 
but within this, you know, within family law and defense work and criminal law, domestic violence. So you've, you've stepped up and spoken about Patrick Kane was probably the biggest or maybe the ugliest. Steve Alford, I just mm-hmm. saw that piece that I'm sure you're happy that he was not picked was. to be the coach of your Hoosiers. <laughs> so you can, you know, definitely um, look up that story. And I think it, that one's on your Facebook page is where I found that one for folks who want to read that. But, I mean, sadly, there's been a lot of those different mm-hmm. instances out there recently of Derek Rose's case, the Baylor football case, Aaron Andrews, mm-hmm. Peyton Manning, multiple NFL yeah. players. So, unfortunately, I guess... As part of this is that you've had a lot of chances to come, almost come forward or put a, put a flag in the ground and make your point and from a victim's perspective and such. But how do you, we talked a little bit about this before the, the flipping the mics on, but I'm somebody that's thin-skinned. I'm somebody that's also very actively engaged in Twitter. I find it a very good source of news. Mm-hmm. And because I'm not... I don't have a ton of followers and the stuff that I do post with painless networking, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's not pretty, it's very soft, Mm -hmm. right? You're putting these things out there that are drawing a ton of attention and some nasty, nasty things. How do you, how do you even cope with that? I am also sensitive and I'm also thin skinned. And that's something I've had to sort of come to terms with. Um, I definitely have a thicker skin now than I did when I got into this business. How do I cope? Geez, it depends on the day. You know, there's days when it rolls off me and and I'm just like, ah, block, you know. And there's other days where things really bother me. Um, There's been this sort of narrative started by some guys on Twitter who run a really terrible website who've, who've accused me from day one of saying that Patrick Kane is guilty, which I never said. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and had I said that, I would have been fired because right, right. we were told in no uncertain terms, be very careful in what you say. You know, there's, there's, you know, there are no, there's no um, definitive ruling either way. There's, we don't know what the evidence is. So I was very careful in what I said. But that's also, sorry to interrupt, but that's also in this case too. It's, it's not just because, Hey, this is a Blackhawks town that may have weighed in there. Right. But from the legal perspective of libel slander, which you could describe, I don't get, but there's also that true, like we have to play it down the middle of the road. Right. Absolutely. It's not just a fan favoritism hometown thing. Right. Yeah. and, And that was, that was the point. So I think we were all very careful. Um, I think that there there were people at the station who were really critical um, of the way he'd conducted himself mm-hmm. in the past. I was not one of those people because I had never seen it, and also because I knew I was going to be the lightning rod for this because people are going to say, "Oh, you've been raped, so you think every woman's been raped." So I was really careful. I had people really early on reach out to me um, f- involved in the investigation, and I was, and they were very credible sources. They were vetted through CBS Radio and editors and everything, and I reported what they told me after getting verification. And there's people who have never forgiven me for that. Um, and they still come at me pretty regularly. There's a group of guys out there who mostly talk about me all day long, every day. Um, and they've, you know, they've done all kinds of horrible things. Um, they've edited together. They've like spliced together audio to try to make it sound like I was saying things I didn't say. And they edited a video together, apparently, which I haven't seen. Um, so there's all that going on. Um, you know, one of the best things I've done is I've, I've gotten a group of women in sports, all pretty high profile. We have an open DM group going all day on Twitter and we literally just pick each other up off the floor, you know, sometimes literally, 
yeah. <laughs> um, because we all go through this. Um, you know, especially if we're if you write about social justice in sports, I think that you get a lot of this. And I've talked with Jamel Hill about it, and I've talked to a bunch of different women working in this industry. Jessica Luther, who wrote on sportsmanlike yep, conduct, yep. and we all are going through the same thing. And so I think that once I stopped viewing other women as competition in the industry mm-hmm. and started viewing them as allies. Things changed because I didn't feel so alone anymore. That's really the worst part is when you feel like people are just coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, telling lies about you, and you feel like you're dealing with it alone. That That's the worst part. Wow. I didn't even, uh, I didn't really think of it from that perspective of the isolation. Yeah. Wow. People who know me would be surprised. I'm speechless, but I mean, that makes, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I didn't even really think of it from that angle. Along those lines, when did the piece and how did the piece that, that video, that um, the hashtag more than mean video, the guys from Just Not Sports that you were on camera having basically mean tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you haven't seen this, look look up the more than mean video on, on YouTube. And um, I don't know any other way to put it than personally, it, it, it breaks my heart to see that that stuff. And to have to go through that had to have been, I mean, you could see it, the emotion on both sides, both your faces, mm-hmm. yours and Sarah's, whoever was being read to, as well as the guys, that says that says a lot of just how vicious it was. But that aside, how, how did it come that come about? Because I personally, I'd say we need more of those kinds of things. Um, how did it happen? So in September of 2015, I'd written a piece for Sports Illustrated about women in sports and how much vitriol they get and had a lot of women in the industry sort of weigh in and give their two cents. And a lot of people were just sort of shocked by it. And were, and especially men who were like, I had no idea this was happening. And all women were like, what do you mean you have no idea what's happening? We've been screaming about it for the last like you know five years. Um, but there were a lot of people shocked by it. And so um, I, I randomly got this email. And I always say everything good in my life has come to me from answering emails from people I didn't know and just saying yes, you know, which is something I always try to tell my kids. Just say yes. Don't say no. Say yes to everything. So um, they're a little bit older. So it's not like, you know, (laughs) not like stranger danger, say yes. But anyway, um, so these guys from Just Not Sports reached out to me and said, you know, hey, we have an idea and here's what it is and would you be willing to do it? And I said, sure, why not? Because that's, I'm impulsive and I do things like that. (laughs) So um, we, we talked to a bunch of other women trying to get them involved. No one else wanted to. And finally, I said, go get Sarah Spain because I know she'll do it. Um, Sarah and I have known each other. We were, we both blogged at the Tribune together and stuff. So so she was the only other person who agreed to do it. And so, you know, one day I find myself st- standing in a warehouse in Ukrainian village with a bunch of guys I don't know. And they're bringing all these other guys in to read these mean tweets to me. But, I mean, they are pretty brilliant at the way they put stuff together. And they do it for a living, and they also do it as a public service. So I was really lucky. I meant to look to see where that video was with views mm-hmm. and I'm sure it's a, a huge number and that that's good because that word has got to get out. It's, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Richard Deitch's uh, SI media uh, podcast and it's, yeah, that was the eye opener um, with Jamel Hill and, mm-hmm. and some of the other women that are on that. I just, I, I it's crazy. And I, I just, I don't get it. And I think that's the worst thing of people hiding behind screen names. Yeah. And if th- that's a big reason why I like to do this podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, we're sitting here looking each other in the eye and have a conversation and I've never met you before. So, and I think this is a far better way to go about things. Mm-hmm. I may not agree with you, but I'm not going to, 
well, anyway, I'm, I get so frustrated by it. I just don't understand it. But um, looking at this, you know, how, how is it, has it changed much, well, hopefully for the better? Are things still status quo? Are they I getting think it's worse? changed for the better. I think I've changed. Um, and I think it definitely started a national conversation. So I feel, like I said, like I'm not dealing with it alone anymore. I mean, I had real sports at my house talking to me about it. I had, you know, I've been on a million shows talking about it. I, you know, and it still continues to happen. I mean, just last week, Upworthy did a piece on it and it blew up all over again. And all of a sudden, all these people reaching out to me and wanting me to do interviews and stuff. So whenever I get the chance to talk about it, I feel like it's making the world a better place. Um, but like I said, I've got a, I've got a support network now of women in the industry and, and I can't express what they mean to me. Um, and in fact, on Facebook, I started a group for women in the industry and it's got everyone from, you know, really high profile national people down to girls in high school who want to be in sports. And it's a place to just go and we have one rule and it's that whatever happens in the group stays in the group. So women go in there and they complain about their work environment. They complain about their boss. They complain about not, you know losing out on a piece or a job they wanted. And it all stays there. And it's so incredibly supportive and wonderful. And I think that especially, you know, I'm the only woman in my my job. It's, you know, the score. So it's, it can feel really isolating even when everybody's really nice because there's just no one else there who understands your experience. And so those people have been really important to me. And instead of ha- when someone says something really horrible, instead of just brooding about it or feeling bad about it, I can easily go and, you know, just screenshot and be like, look what this some asshole sent me today. And then everybody goes, oh my God, you don't yeah. deserve that. And it just makes, it's just positive <laughs> validation. Yeah, yeah, right. But it still happens, and it's, it still happens frequently. I mean, yeah. Do you- One of the good things, though, is there's a couple great things. So, block together, sharing block lists is a great thing oh, that's made a okay. huge difference in my life. And I feel like Twitter's block uh, quality filter has also made a difference. So, not that these people aren't out there anymore, mm-hmm. but that I don't see it as much, which makes a difference. Um, you know, the only thing is that when people are legitimately threatening you, you sort of need to know. Um, so I sort of struggle with that right. sometimes. Like, should I really be looking at this? But just for my own peace of mind, I carry pepper spray. I know how to defend myself. <laughs> and um, it's better for me on a daily basis not to see this stuff. But how often does that happen that you're threatened? I mean, it's one thing of the insults and just horrible type things. But does that still happen fairly frequently, um, too? I had a guy threats? not too long ago send me uh, the worst picture I've ever seen in my life. It was a woman who was bound, and she was being held by a group of men, and her throat had been slit, and they were draining her blood into a bucket. <sighs> Um, oh so stuff like that still happens. Um, and I, you know, I've contacted the police and they've said, yeah, Oh, well, we don't really know if we can do right. anything. Um, they just, you know, that they're is, just, I was going to say is what happens. Yeah. They're just not, um, they're not, they're, they're lagging behind the technology in, in how to deal with it. Um, wow. yeah. And so I'm careful, you know, I don't, if I'm going to tweet about being at a place, I don't, I might write the tweet, but I save it in a draft and I share it after I've left. Mm-hmm. Um, I go different ways to work all the time. Um, I take different trains all the time. I, you know, I just try to be careful. But well, I, I, again, I, I mean, there's people out there and I guess it's, that's what you've got to do. But for, for stating an opinion, I mean, that's the, that's the piece of it. I, not that it's ever justified, but if somebody's stirring the pot up and hot taking for the sake of stirring crap up and making stuff up and insulting people Mm -hmm. that, 
not that they're ever asking for it. That's the same thing of to me of even saying that, oh, well, she was asking for being raped yeah, because right. she, the way she was dressed or something. You never ask to, for it to get to that level. But to the point of even, like you said, with the Patrick Kane, if you, if you go through and from a legal perspective and you were, you were vetting your sources, mm-hmm. this wasn't, you didn't have any vendetta in any way against him or the team. Oh, was, I had the opposite. He's my favorite do, team. I mean, right. I... You were right. It's, <laughs> I it made it, it harder, be... right? Because yeah. you grew up in... Anyway, I... Uh, this... Uh, and I just don't know... I hate that of... Uh, you know, I don't want... In, in my years at agency side or whatever, it's like, it's okay to come if you have a problem, mm-hmm. but don't just come to me with the problem, come to me with the solution. And I mm-hmm. sit here like, oh, what do I say? I say, I'm sorry to you? Yeah, like, I know. Well, it doesn't do you any good, and I, it's certainly not helping the problem. I just I don't even know what it is, and it's, I, I can't imagine it if that was my wife or you know another family member or friend or whatever was mm-hmm. going through that. It's just... I just don't, I don't understand it. And to me, I mean, I guess part of it too, the other piece I wanted to talk to you about was coming back at people. Sometimes Nancy Armour said the same thing sometimes, and she's actually become kind of online friends with some people. She was not threatening folks, but somebody being insulting. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, she made her point back and, oh, I didn't see it that way. And now they communicate. I guess it's kind of, it could go either way with these folks. With some of them, it's going to stir them up or it's going to give them the recognition that they want, which neither of those are good. Does that happen more often than somebody actually winning them, almost winning them over with your argument? I'm assuming it does. Oh the yeah, negative is yeah. I think for sure. I think that you know when we say trolls, we tend to lump them all together. But different trolls want different things. So there's the guys who just want attention. There's the guys who want to embarrass you or humiliate you. There's the guys who want to scare you. Um, and there's the legitimate like crackpots out there. And there's and there's the guys who think that they're on a crusade for their favorite player. And you know I don't know like the player is going to see them defending them and they're going to become best friends in real life. I've I've no idea what the end game is. But um, Kathy Sierra, who was one of the original trolling victims of the internet. She says that, you know, ignore the trolls is the worst advice ever given to women. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and, and I feel personally, there are days, like I said, when I just don't care and I block someone, but there are days when for my own sanity, I need to, especially when someone is just really stupid, you know, they say something idiotic about women and they've got 15 spelling errors in their tweet and stuff. And some days it just feels good to put them on blast and bat them around a little bit before you dispatch them off to where they came from. So, you know, we ignore so much on all women in media. We ignore so much garbage that when you see someone letting off a little bit of steam, let them have it. It makes us feel better. I think it's asking someone to just sit there and take it day after day after day after day is a lot to ask of someone. Right. Especially most of us that are in this industry are no shrinking violets, you know, and we're used to having to stand up for ourselves. So denying someone the right to stand up for themselves, I think is really damaging to your mental health. I feel better sometimes after I bat someone around a little bit. I, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate your 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 candor and, and also, you know, kind of explaining the, the position on all that. I, I didn't get to talk earlier. The I think it's probably the last question I, I have for you is advice now. Like this is a new, I don't know, I'm, I'm making air quotes and feeling this is cheesy, but it's a new generation <laughs> that's coming along uh, that's been, you know, social media has been there since their infancy or, or whatever. But, you know, what advice do you give? I'm assuming you get quite a few uh, women in particular, but in just people in general looking to get into sports casting. Yeah. What's advice that you give right now in this climate 
and with these resources and with the audience that you have, what do you tell people to try to get better at? And I talk to a lot of college students and I always tell them, if you want to do something, just start doing it. Don't wait for someone to hire you. So, you know, back when I graduated college, if I'd wanted to go into sports writing, I would have had to get a job with like the Bloomington Herald and cover high school sports maybe, and then work my way up, you know, and spend years and years in locker rooms and stuff. I didn't have to do that because of blogging and because of the internet and because of podcasting and YouTube videos. So if you want to be in radio, just start a podcast. If you want to be a writer, start a blog and then start working on your social media presence. People will hire you just based on how many followers you have because they think there's already a built-in audience. So that's the biggest advice I always give them is don't wait, just start doing it, work on your craft, you know, build an audience, get a following, and you can take that to someone and say, here's what I can contribute already. Um, and the thing that I tell young women, and, oh, and the other thing is make sure you learn to do a lot of different things. The media, the market is shrinking in media so fast that part of the reason I've got hired is because I can write, I can podcast, I can do on air, I can do video, I can do whatever. So that is really important to not just specialize in one field. I remember in journalism school having to pick like feature magazine writing or newspaper writing or photography. Now you've got to be able to do it all. Um, and the other thing that I always tell young women is ask for what you want. No one can read your mind. And I think that women were so conditioned to don't be bossy, don't be pushy. Don't, boys don't like girls who are smarter than them. So act stupid and be nice and be quiet and don't take up space. And in this industry, the men do not act that way. The men will go into the boss's office and be like, I want to be a host. When can I start hosting? Whereas women are like, oh, it's okay. I'll just, I'll keep doing this for a while. And, and then if you think I'm good enough, then maybe we can talk about it. <laughs> and, and so it feels wrong, I think, for a certain generation of women to, to behave that way, especially in a male-dominated industry, because you feel like you're just lucky to be here, so you should just kind of take whatever's given to you. And I've had to learn to ask for what I want and go in and be like, say to my boss, you know, I know this is going great. And if you have advice for me, I'd love it. But I want to start, I, you know, this person left, I want that spot. And it feels wrong and it feels weird. And you feel like the know-it-all Lisa Simpsons, you know, two smarty pants kind of thing. But that's how you get things that you want in this industry. And, and I think that for women, it, a lot of us were told that that is not the way women comport themselves, but it has to be. And I think that's that's great advice, and I, it makes a lot of sense. And the and so there's some blowback, mm-hmm. no matter what. I think that honestly, you could apply that to certainly across my experience in marketing agency brand side as well. That it's don't be afraid to raise your your hand. Yeah. Don't be afraid to say what about me. Now you need to have some argument to that. Like, right. look, I've done this, this, and this, and this. That's why you prepare to mm-hmm. do that. But don't sit back and wait for it to come to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And that if you've got a boss or other people that have a problem with that, you probably don't want to work with those people. Right. Or if they have a problem, they'll tell you. Well, that's you know? true too, like, right? I mean, right. I feel like if I ever feel like if I'm getting too pushy or my boss will be like, hey, you know what? Just slow down a little bit. <laughs> Just slow your roll a little bit. But, um, you know, he hasn't told me that yet. So I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Well, good luck. We'll we'll keep an ear out for you here around town and an eye out for the latest amazing content online from you. But uh, Julie DeCarroll, thank you very much for all your time today. Thanks for having me. This was was great. It was fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Julie DeCarroll. If you like this episode, make sure you've subscribed if you haven't already and scroll on back through the feed. Check out some of the other great episodes, including Nancy Armour from USA Today Sports, John Lewicki, McDonald's Global Head of Partnerships, 
including the Olympics and World Cup. TK Gore is from uh, CSN Chicago. Chris Reuter, who's the CEO of Spikeball and the voice of all sports in Chicago. Gene Honda are among the uh, first nine episodes. Please email any feedback, suggestions, guest ideas to painlesspod at painless.network. And don't forget to buy your ticket now for the April 20th Painless ECSP event. Spots filling fast. Find that ticket link quickly at painless.network. Until next time, it's Chris Hartwig saying, stay connected, friends. (laughs) 